Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with episode 538 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right. Getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week across NXT and AEW. But folks, not only that, this is an extra special loaded Thursday edition of Getting Over because we are going to look back just a little bit and review the two big matches from ROH Final Battle as well as the main event of AJPW New Year's Giant, which featured an NXT talent in Charlie Dempsey. And not only that, the Silver King was able to watch Wrestle Kingdom 18 before the taping of this show. So we're going to break down the biggest matches from Wrestle Kingdom right here on this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Yes, I promised you earlier this year we were going to start 2024 with a bang, and that is exactly what we are doing. As we get into today's show, allow me to remind you of something extremely important. Getting Over has been nominated for the 2023 Sports Podcast Awards, us nominated as Best Wrestling Podcast of the Year. We would greatly appreciate your vote. You can do so by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast and checking the top pinned tweet on our profile, which is a link to that ballot. Please go ahead, click that link, fill out the very short form, and vote for Getting Over as Best Wrestling Podcast of 2023. We would greatly appreciate it. On that note, please also remember that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So don't forget, head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave some five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. A ton to get to today on this edition of Getting Over. So let's actually kick it off with some of that catching up that I mentioned. We're going to talk three matches here. ROH Final Battle, two from that, and one from AJPW, which is All Japan, New Year's Giant. Then we will get into everything that happened across NXT this week. After that, we'll talk about the fallout from AEW World's End on AEW Dynamite this past Wednesday, and we will wrap up the show with as comprehensive, I think, of a review as I could possibly give you for New Japan Wrestle Kingdom 18. There will be timestamps in the episode description as always, so if you feel like you want to skip around or maybe you don't want to hear a little bit about Ring of Honor, you can check those timestamps and you can do so, but I promise I'm going to be as quick as I can when it comes to the catch-up and when it comes to New Japan, so I hope you listen to the entire show. So to catch up on some big matches that happened that didn't necessarily fit into our other programming. At ROH Final Battle, we're gonna go over two matches. The first, Mark Briscoe and FTR against Blackpool Combat Club in a fight to honor Jay Briscoe match. So Mark kicked out of a neutralizer. Claudio Castagnoli kicked out of a three-man shatter machine. There was a double count out and everyone started fighting on the stage. So Mark just said, hey, let's restart this as an anything goes match. And one second later, 
The bell rang and the match was restarted as a fight without honor match. Somehow a barbed wire covered ladder was ready and just ready to be used for this. And Briscoe got dumped onto it. There was also John Moxley's fork and a bucket of thumbtacks spread on a table. Mox took a pile driver into the table and Briscoe ultimately hit Jay Driller into a pile of chairs for the win. So the first half of this was like a basic six man. And I was really confused over the hype. People were saying, oh my God, this is one of the best matches of the year. Then it made a lot more sense once they restarted. But I still did not feel this hit anywhere near the levels to which it's been praised. I think it got a little bit of extra credit for sentimentality. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we're judging the match honestly, I didn't think it was that spectacular. I would not call it a must watch. No psychology, no real notable callbacks, just some limited violence at the end. So four stars, A minus. Glad I watched it. Don't necessarily suggest you going out of your way. ROH final battle main event was the women's championship, Athena against Billy Starks. One of the best spots was this top rope avalanche German suplex, which actually Konosuke Takeshka ended up hitting same move, dynamite Wednesday night. But I mean, Athena doing it with Billy Starks was really cool. Starks hit her finisher after an inadvertent belt shot and then an electric chair driver on the apron. Athena ultimately got her O-face countered, but locked Starks in an awesome submission for the title retention. Extremely strong match appropriate main event over the six man that we just mentioned. It was a bit too slow for me in parts. Athena is really freaking good. And I kind of hate that she's just stuck down there in ring of honor. Apparently she said that's where she wants to wrestle. If I'm Tony Khan, I'm getting her up on the main AEW roster. 3.75 stars B plus. There was also a story after the bell of Starks agreeing to become Athena's minion. Kind of interesting. They're actually doing women's storylines in ring of honor. So maybe it's actually worth watching for that. But I just don't think that many of you have the subscription. And let's move to the All Japan New Year's Giant Show. This was a triple crown title match. Katsuhiko Nakajima against Charlie Dempsey. So Dempsey wore William Regal's maroon trunks. Well, mostly maroon. There was a random pop of aqua in there, which made them look really odd. This was just a classic Perosero match. Like Dempsey got in a full cattle mutilation. He also did a reverse backslide with a flip over cover, which I'm sure is a thing that has happened but I've never really seen it done before. I just thought it looked awesome. Nakajima eventually followed with a Northern Lights suplex bomb for the win. This was real effing graps right here, this match. Probably the second best match of 2024 up until I saw Wrestle Kingdom, (laughs) but Seth Rollins, Drew McIntyre being the best on day one. So obviously Wrestle Kingdom changed the game significantly and we'll talk about that later. But I actually think some are underrating this that have like graded it online and given their takes. Four stars A minus, is it worth going out and finding if you like real graps and you're curious about Charlie Dempsey? Yes. Are you missing anything spectacular or match of the year? If you don't no. it's just a pretty damn good wrestling match. So that was the catch up. Let's go ahead and move over to NXT. We'll break down everything that happened Tuesday night. So Kelly Kincaid announced breaking news backstage that Ilya Dragunov had not been cleared by WWE medical and therefore would not defend his NXT title against Trick Williams on New Year's Evil. You could hear arguments going down in the training room behind her as she said this. Later backstage, Trick Williams was with Carmelo Hayes saying he's disappointed and they had been training in the gym together to get ready for it. Melo didn't buy the injury saying Ilya was scared and just kind of upset that they were training together. Grayson Waller randomly popped in doubting Trick who dropped naysayer please at him. It got heated with Hayes putting Williams over heavy, trying to set a match. Melo said Trick is so confident that he'd even put the number one contendership on the line. 
to which Waller agreed to fight. Later backstage, Ava explained that what was agreed upon was official. Then she was asked, what exactly is your role? She said a wise man, obviously referring to Paul Heyman, suggested a few months ago that Shawn Michaels would need help as NXT grows, so she stepped up. She still didn't cite like a specific position. Is she the assistant general manager? Is she a liaison? Like, What is her title exactly? But at least that is progress. I do find it funny for those who listen to the show every week that we've been talking about this the last two weeks and now we get a live NXT and they explain the position. Funny how that works. Uh, NXT is booking the Trick and Mellow stuff really well. Another segment like last week where you have Mellow seemingly in complete support of Trick for 99% of the segment, only for that jealousy to kind of peek through at the end. It was actually great seeing the guys back together on the same page, co-signing each other, dapping each other up, saying the same stuff at the same time, like jinxing. And it kind of just makes me want them to drop this storyline so they can just reunite fully and get called up to the main roster. You do also have to wonder if they did the Ridge Holland injury angle because Ilya is actually hurt or like maybe he wasn't actually going to be cleared for this match or they were worried about whether he was going to be cleared. So therefore they did the angle on top of it because Holland didn't actually need this angle to tell his story, which we're going to talk about momentarily. I say momentarily because in terms of naysayer, please, that was hysterical to me. So the long and short of it is that this reference comes from ESPN's college game day, where the host Reese Davis was explaining that Alabama quarterback Jalen Milrow has a brand of apparel called Lank. Let a naysayer know. And Pat McAfee, who's on the panel there, he popped in thinking that Davis was going to say the word that the N in that phrase actually represents. And the entire crew lost their shit laughing at McAfee kind of jumping in with that. So now naysayer is already like the word of 2024. And this was just such a great pop culture reference by Trick, speaking obviously to some degree to a younger audience. Just really good shit here. It popped me as someone who had watched that moment live and then saw Trick call it back here. thought that was pretty cool. Holland got his sit-down interview later in the show. Ridge called back to blowing out both his legs ahead of the War Games match, saying he wondered if his career was over. He had to go home and tell his pregnant wife, I think with two kids, that they may have made all these sacrifices coming to the United States for nothing. Next, he showed getting his nose broken two years ago at day one. They completely skipped over the Big E situation, which is understandable. Holland said everything he stated upon his return to NXT two weeks ago was genuine. And what happened to Dragunov was a legitimate accident. It's not in his DNA to injure people on purpose. He promised to go through the roster and prove himself. I was pleasantly surprised at the way this was handled. We mentioned that this storyline and the gimmick needed to be handled with care. And that's mostly what they did. Not mentioning Big E made sense given the serious nature of the injury. But it was a notable omission because that really was the biggest deal out of all of the injury stuff that Holland has experienced equal to or I mean, obviously worse than his own injury, but his own injury was disastrous as well. Maybe the idea is that like it goes without saying, so they didn't need to say it, or maybe they don't want to mention Big E because he's coming back at the Royal Rumble. Hey, we can hold out hope 
this time every year that he gets back in the ring. Everyone, of course, wants it. So Mello was getting trick hype for his match when Williams shared his anger about Hayes putting the title match on the line without consulting him. Mello said the champion has to take on all comers and Trick needs to practice like he plays because Mello knows he can handle it. Hayes promised to be by his side, but Williams reiterated they already spoke on it and Trick wants to do both matches by himself. Mello again seemed completely genuine until Trick turned down his support and help at the end. And there's really no reason he should not feel that way in reality, especially when, let's not forget, Williams came out and disrupted his title match months ago. So Mello boosting him up only to get like a hand to the face is help denied, which is that has to feel insulting when Trick was by his side all these years in kayfabe. So again, this is one of those deals where maybe Mello did attack Trick. Maybe he didn't. But the way Trick has been acting ever since that moment actually gives Mello reasons to want to turn on him. That's really good booking and really good storytelling. So Trick and Waller was the main event. This was the replacement for the Dragunov match. Shawn Michaels tweeted early during the show that a former NXT champion messaged him wanting to watch the match in person. Waller had a great double stomp to the back of Trick's neck, talked some shit. Williams came back with a flapjack, halted a rolling move and hit an uppercut, plus an avalanche uranagi with Waller getting a rope break. Waller came back with a rolling flatliner. Williams hit a flatliner when Hayes ran down, jumped on the apron, pumping him up and obviously getting into an argument. Waller was eyeing a run into the ring when suddenly Kevin Owens showed up, hit him with a haymaker. Trick then hit the pump knee, got the win, and Mello really did not celebrate. He just was dejected ringside. The show ended with Mello picking up Trick's new shirt and doing a very slow clap for him. So Mello running out when he did obviously needs to be explained next week because it just didn't make any sense. It was a nice swerve in the moment as was KO popping out of nowhere to kind of pay off HBK's tweet and continue the Waller feud going into SmackDown on Friday. The match was neither guy's best. There were not really botches per se, but just moments that lacked fluidity. Ultimately, not the end of the world, but to not get the Dragunov match and instead get something that didn't deliver anywhere near the same level, that was disappointing given it had been advertised all week and promoted even before that. All in all, a successful main event for New Year's Evil, not the best part of the show like it should have been and like it could have been. Women's championship match, Lyra Valkyria against Blair Davenport. This opened the show. Blair did a flying double stomp to Lyra's back with her head bouncing off the canvas. Valkyria came back with a catch German suplex, but Davenport hit a fantastic avalanche falcon arrow. Lyra dodged a Kamagoye attempt with Blair's knee literally breaking the side of the announce table, which was really cool. Davenport sold the shit out of the knee, but stupidly did a high-risk move, hurting it further, and Valkyria capitalized with a roundhouse kick and that new fireman's carry bomb finisher to retain the title. It's almost like a fireman's carry falcon arrow. And now that I think of it, I think it's the same finisher that Mariah May uses, like Mayday, right? So it's just cool. It needs a name. She needs her own name. But as I've said before, I'm just thrilled that Lyra finally has a legitimate finisher that looks good and works for a champion. Lola Vice ran down with her breakout tournament contract, ready to cash in after the bell, but Tatum Paxley hopped out of the crowd and attacked her for the save. Electra Lopez followed for a two-on-two brawl until referee separated them, with Lyra still pissed at Tatum for stalking her. Now, I'll get back to the match, but what the hell is this deal with suddenly any title contract having a Money in the Bank cash-in stipulation? First, AEW did it with the TNT contract, and now NXT is doing it with the breakout contract. That is not how this shit works. If anything, that type of stipulation is something that could have been earned by winning the Iron Survivor qualifier, not for a rookie who won a tournament over other rookies, but really let money in the bank be money in the bank. 
unless you stipulate it at the time the tournament is made or the contract is handed out, I don't want this bullshit, oh, I can cash in at any time and surprise the champion. Let that be a special stipulation. The match was way better than I expected. Not that I doubted the talent of either woman, but I wasn't sure that they would really go all out moveset wise, but they did. The spot into the table was perfect. Davenport had a reasonable defeat, which keeps her atop the division while showing that Valkyria was not only talented, but smart in capitalizing the way she did. Lyra, she's not the most exciting women's champion, but she's done a good job with her creative to this point. As you guys know, I don't do grades for every single match when it comes to TV, but if you're curious, just since one was a number one contendership and one was a women's title match, I was at like 3.25 for both of these. It was just nothing that notable or special. Uh, Later backstage, Nikita Lyons confronted Davenport after the loss, saying she could take her out right there, but that's not how she operates. It got contentious, leading to an eventual match booking in a couple weeks, at least one would expect. I know there are specific reasons that like certain fans are big fans of Nikita Lyons. Gonna look good, but she's got me saying, hey now! But, and you know I hate to use this term, she just comes across as so cringe to me. Like, I just consistently struggled to care about her. But as always, you gotta remember it's developmental and shit can change over time, but she's just not for me as of right now. I I much prefer Lash Legend to her. Just again, a direct A and B comparison. We also saw Tatum in like a Freddy Krueger-esque sweater, Jump surprise, Lyra backstage, happy that she's still champion. Valkyria was scared and Paxley just kind of ran away afterward. I'm curious to see where it's going between them and if there's any tweak to the standard like stalker gimmick that we've seen so many times with women uh, across different promotions and primarily in WWE. Uh, Joaquin Wild, Cruz del Toro, and a partner to be announced fought no quarter catch crew in a six-man tag team match. Dragon Lee was supposed to be the third for LWO, but he legitimately got stuck in Mexico with visa issues due to the holiday season. So a replacement was needed. Dragon will be back soon. It's just the holiday that delayed it, according to reports. Carlito surprised to a huge pop from the crowd, and it was cool to see him in the classic We Are NXT shirt. There was a six spot where Del Toro and Carlito literally flung wild off the middle rope like a slingshot about 20 feet in the air onto the rest of the wrestlers. This dude flew midway down the ramp in a spot I have simply never seen before. This was high-flying LWO against ground-based no quarter as advertised. Damon Kemp did most of the heavy lifting. Wild did a corkscrew outside. Del Toro did a corkscrew 450 after a Carlito backbreaker for the baby face win. After the bell, Drew Gulak said they're gonna train in the den once Charlie Dempsey gets back. Carlito then caught him with an apple spit. Super fun, six man. Great feature spot for Wild and Del Toro. This is the type of stuff we need to see from them on the main roster. There is no reason they can't wrestle against the likes of Pretty Deadly, for example, and get wins or even in a loss, do some moves like this and get super over. These are talented guys. Let them show their damn talent. And by the way, Carlito here, probably his best appearance since his return to the main roster or to WWE, I should say. Back to the wild spot though, it has received immense attention since Tuesday and deservingly so. It was ridiculous. And I think fair to say, I mean, look, we're only four days in, okay? But the moment of 2024 at this point, I've been watching wrestling for more than three decades. Like I said, I've simply never seen that before. It was fantastic, loved it. And I hope we get similar inventiveness from LWO in the future. Fallon Henley fought Tiffany Stratton in a ranch hand slash servant match. There was a really strong pre-match video package focused 
on their extended feud, including Fallon's great impersonation of Tiffany. Henley hit a crucifix bomb, Stratton rushed the prettiest moonsault ever and missed as planned, but it was off to the side and kind of strange. It kind of looked like a botch. Stratton brought a chair into the ring for no reason whatsoever in a regular match, did a tug of war with the referee when Henley caught her with a shining wizard for the win to make Stratton her ranch hand for the day. I'm just left wondering, like, when are we going to get a real good long match between these two? I know they're trying to drag out the story, and I assume we'll eventually get a rubber match coming out of this gimmick, but it's frustrating to this point because I just want to see them go. All that said, I'm pleased with Fallon winning because we usually see the heel take matches like this. It's going to be so much more fun having Tiffy get her comeuppance, especially because she's probably likely to win the third match in the rubber match feud. I could see this being done in the style of like Paris Hilton's Simple Life, that reality show from back in the day with Stratton complaining and getting her hands dirty and like pig crap and all that. The skits are probably going to be great, but we'll find out maybe next week and beyond. Baron Corbin backstage approached Braun Breaker, who changed his facial hair to a long goatee. It's way worse than it was before. Corbin suggested they team up for the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic, which made Breaker laugh, only for Corbin to explain that, A, he doesn't really have any other opportunities because he's a smug, arrogant asshole, and B, they have that in common because they're both assholes. They can use that and go win the titles. Braun got the vision eventually with him as the leader. They argued about it a little more, but he eventually caved and they decided to link up. It's always fun when NXT does like the strange bedfellows deal for the Dusty Cup. This team has actually been built and teased for weeks based on some quick backstage segments. You have to think they're the favorites right now, given the faces are the current champions. And that title switch, taking it off D'Angelo family, would make a lot of sense ahead of stand and deliver in a few months. You have these guys go in as champions. That gives you two big names on the card that otherwise might not have anything major to do. Corbin was in the finals of the 2015 tournament, so maybe they actually win this. Definitely need a tag team name uh, at some point. There's badass wolves. There's a lot of things they could do. This actually over-delivered just from like an entertainment standpoint of a segment. And the idea of two assholes agreeing that they are assholes and then teaming up for that reason, for me, that hits well. Uh, Nathan Frazier and Axiom also agreed to become Dusty Cup teammates backstage when Frazier began talking shit about the rest of the division, only for Malik Blade and Idris Anofe to pop up behind them, saying being friends does not automatically make a good tag team. We also saw Brooks Jensen sitting in the locker room watching all of this transpire, clearly depressed and upset that he no longer has a partner. The Jensen part was a nice touch, and Frazier teaming up with Axiom makes sense given their long-term friendship storyline. This cup is shaping up Real nice in terms of having talented teams competing, and it does begin next week. Out the Mud cut a promo on D'Angelo family, saying they're actually a real family that's hungry, having to fight from the bottom. They said they needed gold on their waist to match what they got on their necks and in their ears. Script said that they beat the streets, beat the system, and they're going to fight the family to become champions. This was actually by far the best presentation of OTM yet. They have a unique, legitimate real edge that most wrestlers just do not. Still need to improve the in-ring work and more beyond that, but pretty solid. The D'Angelo's later in the parking lot cut a short promo on OTM before officially introducing Adriana Rizzo. They went to pop their trunk when suddenly Joe Gacy jumped out saying he'd been in there for a few hours because he needed a quiet place to think. And apparently they were wondering where the body was that was in there previously. And it got kind of confusing. He just said they let them, he let them go. Fun little segment, taking you know the Gacy gimmick with the D'Angelo gimmick and putting them together. Roxanne Perez fought Ariana Grace. Roxy wore all black with her colored logo and showed some renewed aggressiveness. 
Grace drove her head into the turnbuckle pole late in the match, enraging Perez more. She quickly hit Pop Rocks for the win. Grace yelled after the bell that Perez had issues, so Roxy just beat the ever-loving shit out of her, locked in a crossface until three referees broke them up. The main referee then jumps outside, reverses the decision of the match because Perez did not follow his instructions, so Roxy went off again screaming. This was perfect until the decision reversal. You cannot change the outcome of a match or game or whatever like two minutes after it's over because you don't like the way someone acts after the buzzer sounds. This isn't middle school where you're like teaching kids a lesson. If you want to do this finish, you have Roxy not go for the pinfall after Pop Rocks and instead lock in the submission with Grace tapping, but Roxy not releasing, therefore getting disqualified immediately after the fact. That's the only logical way to book this. This was the opposite. It was completely illogical. That said, I liked seeing the aggressiveness from Perez, and it's great that they're allowing her to grow up and develop her character, similar to the way Cora Jade has done that recently and had a metamorphosis of her own. But there's no excuse for that nonsensical booking when you can actually get it done in a logical way by erasing a step, which is the pinfall victory. Cora Jade, speaking of her, and Gigi Dolan got into it in the locker room again. It was actually a pretty good confrontation given what we've seen from others, but it was nothing special. Match between them to come. Riley Osborne fought Oba Femi in a breakout final, the NXT breakout tournament final, I should say. Well, Osborne basically wrote an essay for Chase U explaining his desire to be the next European superstar, though he admitted to himself that Femi would be a challenge. Oba later got his own promo package, putting over his Nigerian heritage and how power is expected from men like him. Before the match, JC Jane sent Thea Hale up to Riley to wish him luck. She got a high five, fangirled out, said she wasn't going to wash her hand. Then they watched from the student section, which distracted Osborne early, led to him eating a chop. Femi hit a Uranagi backbreaker, but got dodged into the post. Osborne hit a standing corkscrew moonsault and a leaping knee, but Femi got knees up on a 450 splash, coming back with snake eyes, a toss suplex, and a pop-up powerbomb for the win. The ladies were dejected in the crowd. Oba, though, he looked outstanding here. And this was easily, without question, the best match of both breakout tournaments combined. Femi's selling improved, his facial expressions were completely on point, and the wrestling was solid from bell to bell. Definitely the right winner, even though Osborne has flashed. Thea was later nervous backstage, saying she wanted to text Riley or maybe buy him a gift card, but they agreed she should chill and just let it play out. Andre Chase and Duke Hudson came up, ready to join the Dusty Cup, but JC denied Andre Chase, saying she was taking over, she's in charge, Duke's going to team up with Riley, and Chase needs to go deal with his debt, which was a top priority. Jane then said she and Hale will get the money. I liked the way this transpired, especially from like a logistical standpoint. Chase does not need to be focused on the Dusty Cup when he has the debt issue. It just makes all the sense in the world. So my question is, A, is JC fully taking over? So is it going to be JCU going forward? And two, how are they going to get the money? Because there's one modern way that with her and Thea would make sense, but I don't think they're going to do that in NXT. But maybe they will. I don't know. We're, we're going to find out, and I hope you understand what I'm alluding to there. Uh, Izzy Dame and Kiana James explained their decisions to link with one another backstage. Dame talked about being beating bitches, her word, uh, on and off the volleyball court. I guess she's a former volleyball player. They shared how James's business acumen would help them find success and riches. This didn't work for me. It didn't give me much more to care about when it came to Izzy. She neither has a unique look nor style that stands out in any meaningful way, wasn't particularly good on promo, 
Haven't seen her be that good in the ring. It's early. Again, it's developmental. We'll see what they do with them. But early impressions of her, not impressive at all. Uh, Paul Levesque announced Thursday morning that WWE Money in the Bank and NXT Heatwave will be held in Toronto this coming July. It's going to be the first NXT outside of the United States since 2019. NXT TakeOver Premium Live event is what I meant to say. And it's going to be in Toronto just like it was in 2019. That was SummerSlam weekend back then. We're going to talk much more about Money in the Bank when it comes to our Tuesday WWE show. I know Sami Zayn is from Montreal and not Toronto, but if they don't go with the title match that we discussed at WrestleMania, I could sure as hell see him winning Money in the Bank in Canada. That would be a massive, insane pop. All right, that wraps up NXT. So let's quickly move over to AEW, the vast majority of which is breakdowns of Dynamite coming out of World's End. And normally I do a second look when it comes to premium live events and pay-per-views. I saw no reason whatsoever to do one for World's End, as mentioned on that Instant Analysis podcast. Samoa Joe opened Dynamite with a taped promo. He basically said he screwed over MJF because he embarrassed him while cheating to win in their first matchup. This was a typically excellent promo from Joe. Also typical that AEW did not have its champion, in this case, a new champion, on the first show after a pay-per-view. I have no idea why they do this and why they think a post-pay-per-view taped promo is enough for a world champion on the show after. It just does not make any sense to me. So Dynamite opened after this with Adam Cole's entrance music and pyro, which gave way to a new Undisputed Kingdom logo and entrance, all black and white, with the other guys still wearing the devil jackets. The theme was a slowed down remix of Cole, and it actually hit. I thought it was pretty damn good. Cole said he's not the bad guy for turning on MJF, who made enemies out of pretty much the entire locker room. He said MJF is gone and never coming back, and everyone, including Tony Khan, will thank him for that. Cole said MJF needed him, not the other way around, and he even broke his ankle for him. Cole then set their agenda, including Roderick Strong going after the international title, Wardlow becoming world champion, promising to hand it to Cole when he's healthy. Cole called Joe a friend he was happy to help, but hoped he no longer had the title when Wardlow becomes number one contender. Then Jay White came out, and it ended up with him, of course, angry at being collateral damage from the devil. So he ran down the guns for a three-on-four brawl until Acclaimed made the save as they were also victims. Interesting given Billy Gunn and his sons. They were kind of all together, even though they were on opposite teams. The trios stood off, fans chanted scissor, but of course, Bullet Club Gold just dipped out of there. So I was super mixed on this, on the aesthetic. There's a clear attempt at like, NWO Bullet Club with the black and white, the scratch, the whole deal. Undisputed Kingdom is a far better name than Undisputed Era ever was, but because it comes after Undisputed Era existed, it's obviously derivative of the NXT faction, which I just think is unnecessary. Why couldn't they just come up with a brand new faction name rather than try to play off NXT? And that's the other thing. Only two of the members are the same, right? If it was multiple guys and you're going to use a similar name, like, okay, I can stomach that, but it's only two of them. And Strong wasn't even part of the initial group. I actually like the crown logo a lot, but that should be what everyone wears. It should be on the guy's backs and ultimately on their gear, not the devil mask. They're not the devils. They're the undisputed kingdom. It's time to move past the devil shit. In terms of the promo, Cole is great on the mic. So the delivery was on point and the mission in general makes sense. But for me as a viewer, 
It all just rang immensely hollow. Why? Well, Cole can't do anything. He's hurt. MJF is gone for a while. He's hurt. No one gives a flying fuck about the kingdom, nor do they care about the ROH tag team titles. So half of the faction is irrelevant. Maybe Strong wins the international title, but even if he does, that's a shrug. And I have no expectation of Wardlow actually winning the world championship, let alone the idea of him handing it to Cole. Even the suggestion of that made Wardlow look like the same chump he used to be with MJF, both pre-Pinnacle and during the Pinnacle. And yes, you're gonna say Silver King, Wardlow made a dismissive face when Cole said that. He did, you're right, but Cole still said it. Why would this guy and Wardlow agree to join another faction where their leader sees him as nothing more than a heavy? And this was maybe the worst part of the entire deal. Really, for me, the only thing that saved it was Cole's delivery. But otherwise, I just found myself sitting there saying, this is supposed to be a huge monumental moment. They took down the top babyface who used to be a hated heel and Adam Cole's the devil and all this stuff. And you're just looking at it and it's like, well, he's the devil. Yeah, but he has one foot and he's sitting in a chair. And the most scary guy in the entire faction, the Batista, if you want to call it, is Wardlow. Yet, in this case, there's no Triple H and there's no Ric Flair. You know what I mean? Like, there's no one else there that makes you say, wow, this is a powerful group. They're going to take over AEW. I just didn't get that feeling, right? So look, maybe they proved me wrong. And Cole's super talented and strong is talented and Undisputed Era did work in NXT. But it just didn't really work for me coming here to start Dynamite. Uh, Daniel Garcia fought Swerve Strickland. This was the main event. Real nice taped promo from Garcia preceding this. Maybe his best ever. Swerve backstage said he respects Garcia, but was focused on inflicting pain. Then he said he was going after Joe and his title. Prince Nana and Garcia had a dance battle ringside in the middle of what Garcia earlier said was one of the biggest matches of his career. Think about that for a moment. Swerve started pushing Daddy Magic on commentary for no reason. Then Garcia tried to put Swerve in a sharpshooter on the announce table, only for the entire thing to botch, and both completely just fell off the side of the table. Garcia took Swerve's head off with a huge knee, only for Swerve to immediately hit a rolling flatliner and a house call for a 3.1 false finish, so that big knee he didn't even really sell. He followed with Swerve Stomp for another false finish, so then Swerve hit house call and JML Driver to the back of the neck for the win. Swerve offered a hand after the bell, only for Nana to low blow Garcia, so Matt Menard attacked. He took a low blow from Swerve, then Hangman Page, who earlier in the show ranted at Renee backstage about needing to beat the shit out of someone. And if he couldn't do it to Adam Cole, he would do it to Samoa Joe. And if Samoa Joe wasn't there, he would find someone. He runs out, immediately stares down Swerve. They brawl and get separated with Dynamite ending. So look, the sharpshooter spot was unfortunate, but it was also unnecessary given you can't register a submission outside the ring. And the AEW announce table is way too narrow to accomplish something like that. You would think they would have tested it before the show. The first half of this match was a bunch of nothing. The finishing sequence succeeded in making Garcia look strong, but it was an awful lot for a non-champion and non-main eventer to take, particularly when the Swerve Stomp has beaten bigger and better wrestlers already. So why is Garcia the one that needs four finishers in order to be beaten? The post-match with Hangman made sense because of their heated storyline. It's also interesting because there's only two options. Either Swerve wins, sweeps Hangman, making the babyface look even worse than he already did after the second match, or 
Hangman wins, and Swerve's heavy talk about going after the world title is immediately snuffed out by getting beat in his first rivalry match since that proclamation. We're going to have to see what they do, though. One would think Hangman should first be focused on taking out Undisputed Kingdom before turning to Joe, possibly with Swerve getting in his way, which then leads to the rekindling of the rivalry with Paige becoming number one contender by beating Swerve. That's really the way this should play out or tie together all those elements. Another way they can go about it is a triple threat with Hangman, Swerve, and Joe. That allows Joe to retain, and then Swerve and Hangman can do their rubber match after the fact. So a lot of different machinations that can be put together here. Swerve and Hangman, getting more of that, that's a huge positive. I just didn't necessarily love like the way the match finish was booked with Garcia, as mentioned. Christian Cage with the Patriarchy opened hour two, saying the same shit as usual. He praised everyone except Luchasaurus, instead giving himself credit for beating Adam Copeland to regain the title. Fans chanted for Luchasaurus as Cage said he's 2-0 against Copeland, which means no more title shots, and that he's proven he's better than him. Fans looked toward the ramp, hoping someone would come out, but they never did. Luchasaurus spent the second half of the segment largely staring daggers into the back of Christian's head. It's fine to do a bit of a reset after a major title defense or a pay-per-view, But like the fans in attendance, I was just hoping something would come out of this. With it now known that Jungle Boy is not the devil, I'm starting to wonder if this wraps up the storyline with he and Luchasaurus reuniting after like 18 months and Jack Perry being the one to end Christian's reign. That would ultimately make a lot of sense, but it would require a face turn that could easily be accomplished by Jungle Boy saving Luchasaurus, who is starting to get back over as a babyface given the events of World End and then again on Dynamite. So this segment was a big nothing to me, but if my instincts are right, the booking that may transpire out of it could hit. We had Darby Allen against Konosuke Takeshka. No storyline or reason for this booking. Takeshka did a double rolling German suplex on the ramp, which again is something I've legitimately never seen before. He also hit a top rope avalanche German that was fantastic, same move that we mentioned earlier. Darby asked for more with Takeshka taking his head off on a driving knee for a clean dominant win, stunning that Darby was beaten in this manner, but it was a nice return to relevance for a guy in Takeshka who should have gotten the rocket strapped to him coming out of two wins over Kenny Omega, but instead he was forgotten about. My guess is they booked this match in that manner for that exact reason. I've seen some candidly ridiculous like grades and and praise out there for this match. It was really freaking good, but I gave it four stars A minus. I don't think it needs to be anything beyond that. It was also too quick to really be much more than that, Uh, but it was super entertaining and a really good moment on the show for Takeshka and a good sell by Alan. I assume he's going to go back to training for Mount Everest or or whatever that thing he is uh, doing. Tony Storm backstage was upset to be in New Jersey instead of New York on Broadway. She said she doesn't watch wrestling and therefore wouldn't watch Mariah May's match. Mariah May's match was against Queen Aminata. Mariah hit a sling blade late plus May Day to get the win. She also had a nice running shotgun dropkick at one point. This got like six minutes and 30 seconds total, half of which was actual TV time, the other half during picture in picture. May's impressive, but we didn't really get to see much of it. Mariah was thrilled to get the win, hoping Tony was proud of her. Then she shit on New Jersey, which led to Jersey resident Diana Perrazzo to come out to the ring, making her debut, saying she was aiming for Storm and she was all elite. Then they slapped each other with Perrazzo getting the upper hand with a kick. Look, Diana, notable ad to the AEW women's division, just based on her in-ring talent and pretty decent promo ability. For me, she falls into the same class of like Serena Deeb and really 
they're not that dissimilar from what they bring to the table. She's a valuable talent. She's an asset. She's not someone I'm going to say who's going to be a significant difference maker other than helping the division put on better matches. Obviously, smart to debut her in Jersey because she'd not really have gotten as strong a reaction elsewhere. Going after Tony right away is smart, though. Put her right in the main event scene. We had Elio Del Vikingo, Tremperetta, Brian Cage, and Brian Keith in a Continental Crown Eliminator match, but it was a four-way. So I guess three people were getting eliminated. Also, half the match was not even under AEW contract. Eddie Kingston came out for commentary, carrying only two of three titles. Guess I was wrong about the Continental Crown representing all three, but also why didn't he have all three? I will say that Eddie had the best commentary line of the night. It was at the start of the match. They said, hey, Eddie, who do you want to win? And he's like, I don't care. I don't book the show. <laughs> Just pop me hysterical. I thought it was hysterical. Anyway, Trent did a release German of uh, Cage off the ropes, and he straight up landed on his head. Then production missed a Vikingo high-risk pin break. Cage hit a powerbomb and a Liger bomb on Trent. Danhausen watched from the crowd. He ran into Curse Cage. Trent then countered Keith into his finisher for the win. Remember that Kingston put both of his titles on the line, went through a two-month barn burner of a tournament to win the new title, and actually came out on top. And now Beretta, of all people, gets a title match one week after winning a four-way over basically nobody. I mean, Vikingo's talented, but no one's really built up, right? Like, what are we doing here? What's this title mean? Why is he winning an opportunity at it the same way someone could a TNT title? It's just it's just so weird. Uh, House of Black accepted FTR's challenge in North Carolina in front of their friends and family, saying if House wins, they will disown their family and walk out with the House of Black. I always like the aesthetic of their promos, but why FTR would agree to that stipulation doesn't make any sense. We'll have to see what happens on Collision, though, before we truly judge. On Rampage, Orange Cassidy, Trent, and Rocky Romero fought top flight. There was hardly any tagging in this match at all. It was ridiculous to the point that Excalibur did not even know who was legal. Romero ate a flashy Uranagi from Dante Martin with top flight getting the win. Strange they would put them over after they just lost the trio's title match. The match was mediocre at best. Then they did the same setup for a title match with Orange and Dante that is done every week. So back on Dynamite International Championship, Orange against Dante. Some loser walked through the crowd with a huge WWE is fake sign only to eventually get escorted away by security. You know, because AEW is real, right? So WWE is fake. Makes all the sense in the world. There was a spot where Orange rolled away to avoid a high-risk move, but Dante took a step onto the top rope for a splash. Seconds later, he ate an orange punch for the title retention. The finish was a callback to the end of the trios match that we just discussed. Then the referee asked them to shake hands for some reason, which I don't know why that's his job. Private Party then came out with Mark Quinn making his return to TV. They came to the ring saying they were putting the entire division on notice, including the Hardys. So clearly they're not with them anymore. Somehow they did not mention the actual champions in this soliloquy. Private Party looked good. It felt wedged into a clunky post-match. It also felt like something that was just like early days AEW that they've gotten past as a gimmick, and yet they brought it back. The match didn't do anything for me. The only way it really makes sense to do this whole Orange sees any comment as a challenge gimmick is to have one of these random competitors, one of these random challengers, actually beat him for the title. Otherwise, it's one undeserving challenger after another for what has become AEW's number two title. If you want to do shit like this, do it with the TNT title, which is what a TV title is for. Don't treat your number two title like this. On Rampage, uh, Ruby Soho fought Marina Shafir. Harley Cameron jumped on the apron and got punched, allowing Soho to roll up Shafir for the win. I know it's just a heel antic, but Ruby being unable to beat a jobber in Marina and then actually beating her via roll up 
without even hitting a finisher. That's just absurd. And then on Dynamite, Soho thanked Cameron for her help. Harley acted kind of strange. And as they walked off, Soraya said something to her like, stop it, you're making it obvious. Almost like they're hooking up or something. I'm not exactly sure what this was. I don't really have much else for it. Dynamite, I thought, flew by. That's a compliment. Uh, A lot happened. A lot of it was noteworthy. And the match quality was pretty solid throughout the entire show. It just didn't really feel... I don't want to say it didn't feel important because... The opening segment and the main event both did feel important, but the opening segment didn't really deliver, and the main event ended with the rekindling of a feud that we've already been seeing for the last like four or five months. So the show didn't deliver as much as I kind of expected that it would coming out of the devil reveal and the Adam Cole stuff, but it was also an enjoyable two hours. I had no problem watching it, um, you know, what not like some other post pay-per-view dynamites that have been a struggle previously. There was more intention here from Tony Khan's booking, and that was appreciated. We will see what happens when it comes to Rampage and Collision this coming week. So that wraps up AEW. Allow us to move to New Japan, Wrestle Kingdom 18. As mentioned, I did get a chance to look at about five matches from this card, many of them super important, and we're going to go ahead and break them down for you right now. Just like a normal instant analysis, let's go ahead and start with the main event, IWGP World Heavyweight Championship, Sonata defending against Tetsuya Naito. Uh, Naito dodged a moonsault, hit a great dropkick, knocking Sonata off the apron. Naito came back with a Poison Rana, but got knees up on a moonsault that followed. I should say Naito ate that Poison Rana. After an onslaught from Sonata, Naito caught him with Destino, but did not cover. Instead, Sonata countered a second one into a TKO. Sonata hit like one and a half moonsaults. Naito came back with two Destinos. The second one botched for a real lackadaisical false finish, but action did pick up coming out of that. Uh, Sonata answered with his deadfall DDT and actually hit a Destino himself. Naito answered with a tornado DDT off the ropes. Sonata came back with a tight near fall and a shining wizard. Naito then hit Sonata's deadfall and a brain buster plus Destino for the one, two, three to win the world title. Great to see Naito get the title back here. It's his first reign since 2020, and fans have been dying for him to be in the top spot again. It's actually his first reign with this iteration of the championship. Kazuchika Okada, he's obviously like New Japan's biggest star, the ace of the future, I guess you could say supplanting Hiroshi Tanahashi, but Naito is easily the most loved by fans. He's been screwed over in kayfabe and reality so many times that this moment clearly hit. The pop at the end was massive despite all the other big names on the show. What we need to hope for now is that this is a real reign. The match was decent throughout. The last two minutes were extremely well done. I loved the emotion that Sonata showed crying at the end, which I think is only really the second time that we've seen something like that from him. It's possible Sonata was out of it for a bit, like maybe got knocked for a loop. That would explain some of the clunkiness I mentioned. Naito also got his eye busted open, either in the finish or just before it. This is what finishing the story looks like. Naito was able to finish the story. Four stars, A minus, really, really solid match from bell to bell. Uh, Evil, who like Sonata, was a former Los Ingobernables de Japón member. He attacked as Naito was about to do his post-match promo, but Sonata made the save with the Shining Wizard in a really nice swerve that got Sonata over as a babyface. One could argue got him more over than his entire title reign did. Entire title reign. Let's go with that. Uh, I wonder if they're going to have him win the G1. I hope not, but... I kind of got that feeling coming out of this. Let's move to Kazuchika Okada against Brian Danielson. Okada's entrance here was super eye-catching with gold confetti falling and a great shot as he walked to the ring. They also did this deal where 
They ran a like fluorescent light over his entire body and his white coat changed colors. Would have been way cooler to do that with him like getting into an elevator and then lifting up. And as he lifted up, the jacket changed colors. But hey, that's my idea. Danielson got some fire pyro and it was really cool just to see him walk down the ramp at the Tokyo Dome. Such a cool moment. They did a random spot out of the ring where Okada almost like ran an obstacle course only for Brian to catch him with a flying knee. Okada hit a tombstone on the ring apron and booted Danielson directly in the eye back inside before hitting an air raid neck breaker. Brian hit a bazaiku knee and locked in a cross face and butterfly. Okada finally hit Rainmaker coming out of this. Brian was attacking uh, and Okada was selling the arm throughout, expertly I should add. Tons of finisher counters came next with Okada drop kicking out of the knee and hitting Rainmaker for the one, two, three. Okada hugged Danielson after the bell, then got on his knees and bowed to him. Brian responded in kind. They shook hands. This was actually great because Brian had to change the hand he offered. He focused on attacking the right arm all match. So he first offered the right. He was, oh, he's, he can't shake. So then he gave him the left. This was excellent across the board. For me, the finish came too suddenly. It went 24 minutes, but another five or six really would have put this over the top. The buildup was so long that by the time they got into the heated action, the conclusion was short and sudden. This just, it just didn't hit for me the way it did others. And I'm not going to give them extra credit just because A, they're two of the best wrestlers in the world. B, wrestling in one of the best venues in the world. C, on one of the biggest shows of the year. 4.5 stars and an A. I believe I was at 4 or 4.25 for their first match at Forbidden Door last year. A certain someone gave that 4.75, which was the height of absurdity as far as I was concerned. That probably means that same someone will give this five stars or better. It's just not. I'm just being honest with you. A rubber match was teased after the bell. Brian has won in America. Okada has won in Japan. Maybe they do the rubber match, the third match at all in at Wembley Stadium. That would make a lot of sense. Maybe they were holding back a little bit to make sure that one is extra epic. But despite all these being dream matches, Okada and Danielson, for me, they are not at the level working together that we have seen from Okada against Naito, Kenny Omega, and Will Ospreay, even Shingo to a degree, Takagi. I think they're great wrestlers. Again, great wrestlers, great venue, great show. But that doesn't automatically mean you get a five-star match. 4.5 stars, A, 100% worth watching. Before the IWGP tag team and NJPW strong openweight tag team title match, that is a mouthful, the former Dolph Ziggler, Nick Nemeth, walked out with his brother, Ryan Nemeth, and sat in VIP seats near the ring. Nick was called a wanted man, and we later saw a social media vignette released where he was called the same thing while, wait for it, fighting zombies. Yes, really, zombies. The production quality was pretty high, but yeah, he was fighting zombies. Anyway, I'd never have guessed that Ziggler would make his first non-WWE appearance at Wrestle Kingdom of all places, so that popped the hell out of me. I would love to see him solo in the G1, less interested in them teaming, but obviously getting a chance to do that with your brother makes a lot of sense. We had an IWGP Global Heavyweight Championship match, Will Ospreay, John Moxley, and David Finlay. There's a convoluted story behind this, but the long and short of it is that this is a new title replacing the US Championship, which became the UK Championship for a period. Mox got a Batman entrance and Osprey got an Assassin's Creed entrance. This is also a reminder, Mox's new Japan theme is way better than both of his AEW themes. Osprey's will be an entrance of the year nominee, just like Kenny Omega's was 
last year at Wrestle Kingdom. Mox and he, being Osprey, agreed pre-match to take out Finlay and fight for the title between themselves, which was put into action early with a double powerbomb through a table. Mox did a Spanish fly, impressive, into an armbar, and somehow, moments later, he bladed as usual after a shillelagh shot. Mox hit Death Rider on Osprey for a false finish. Finlay hit Uranagis into chairs and then into his knee. Mox countered Osprey into Death Rider, only for Osprey to immediately hit Hidden Blade rebounding. Finlay got his nose busted open. So the BC War Dogs attacked because we can't have nice things. Eventually, Osprey took out the dogs with a senton off the top rope through two tables. Mox caught Finlay with two Death Riders, uh, but Osprey hit him with Hidden Blade for a one count plus a second one and a Stormbreaker, only for Finlay to somehow recover from two finishers in about 10 seconds. With Into Oblivion, Finlay then added a knee to the shoulders and basically a modified GTS for the win. This match was rolling hot. And then it suffered from typical ghetto overbooking. First with BC War Dogs, which no one wants, but okay, they're a faction it plays. Then you have Finlay recovering from two Death Riders in 10 seconds. Mox kicking out at one, no selling everything, total iral at this point, and Finlay ultimately prevailing. Now, the booking made sense because he's the only NJPW full-timer, but it's neither Mox's best nor Osprey's best match. Finlay was okay. He was by far the third most important person. Them one-on-one, Mox and Osprey, would have absolutely banged. It probably would have been a five-star match. Plus, with Finlay, they all did well enough together, 4.25 stars and an A. I would say it's a must-watch match, but, you know, Nothing that you should kill yourself over. So Finlay was celebrating with the title after the bell. And I should note that the global title, it is a bit small, but it is the best looking by far new IWGP title that we've gotten in a long time. Way better than the World Heavyweight Championship. Certainly better than the TV title, which we'll talk about in a moment. I just miss the old heavyweight and intercontinental titles. Bring those back. Anyway, he's celebrating with the new title at ringside, got into a full shoving match with Nemeth. So it looks like that's going to be a quickly built title match coming up sooner than later for New Japan. Probably the San Jose show. Not sure they're going to put the title on Dolph that quickly, but it would be cool. And him in New Japan, way, way more interesting than AEW, though I'm sure that's going to happen eventually. Never open weight championship. Shingo Takagi against Tama Tonga. This was hot from the opening bell. Tonga countered into Gunstun. He was unable to cover. Tonga rolled through a Hurakarana, but Shingo countered an attack with a Gunstun and a massive Lariat plus made in Japan for a false finish. Tonga came back with a Styles Clash out of nowhere and Gunstun for another false finish. Finally hit Tiger Driver 98 to win the title in what I must call an upset. This was a 13 minute banger between these two and the best match I've seen from Tonga in years. Easily the match of the night to this point. I'd have loved another five minutes, four stars, A minus. After this match, Tonga announced he would be leaving Japan in a month, which is so typical New Japan for a guy not under long-term contract to win a title on their biggest show of the year and then leave the promotion almost immediately. There were two occasions where WWE was speaking with him, once before or during the early part of the pandemic, and then recently around the same time as Jay White with the hiring freeze. So it is a possibility that he goes to WWE. Another option is Impact, where he could, didn't mean this, but make an impact uh, as a significant talent for the men's division. AEW is obviously out there as an option. I do not think he gives them anything, though. It'll be interesting to see where he goes. He's talented, he can speak, but he's also 41. I do think there is potentially something with AJ Styles turning heel in WWE. 
He blew off the Good Brothers. You'll remember a week ago or a couple of weeks ago, maybe Tonga comes in and reunites with Styles. Maybe he does reunite with the Good Brothers and they all go heel and they bring Bullet Club, you know, even more so to the U.S. I'm not sure. That's just a guess. And lastly, the NJPW Television Championship, Zack Sabre Jr. against Hiroshi Tanahashi. And as you know, Tanahashi was just named president of NJPW. Sabre worked the neck and upper body late in a good match that went both ways, but it finished in uninspiring fashion as they simply reversed pinning combinations like 10 times with Tanahashi ending a year-long title reign with a quick one, two, three. I guess it was done to protect Sabre, but for what was a solid match, it just felt like way too simple of a finish. Maybe it was the camera work that kind of exposed it a little bit. Maybe it was Tanahashi being 47 and not being able to go the same way. I did laugh to myself. He was dressed like pretty deadly during this match. This is actually the first time I've gotten a look at the new TV title, which is a big gold rectangle that says NJPW World on it. Might be the worst looking TV title I can remember other than the half-assed AEW TNT title during the pandemic. So I say half-assed, but there was a reason for it. Three point five stars and a B, maybe 3.25. The finish was really weak. All in all, and I obviously just spoke about five matches and they were a lot more on the card. This was the best Wrestle Kingdom as a viewer that I experienced since before the pandemic. It actually felt like Wrestle Kingdom, an enormous show, multiple big matches, multiple notable moments. It also didn't drag like it has in years past. Easily the show of the year. We're only four days into 2024, but the show of the year to this point, we got a long way to go. We'll see if it stands up um, at the end of the year. I don't know. You know, last year at Wrestle Kingdom, we had Omega Osprey, which was like a no-brainer match of the year contender, if not winner. I didn't see that here. Again, Danielson and Okada, it's going to get immense praise, especially from a certain someone. I'm sure they're going to go above and beyond. I thought it was really freaking great. I just didn't think it was a five-star match. I see people saying that. I just disagree with you. As simple as that. Folks, this was a absolutely loaded edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast for you. I hope you enjoyed it. We have so much still to come here at Getting Over, of course, already in the archives. Not only do we have your 2023 year in review, we also have the first WWE episode of 2024, which went over The Rock's return to the company, a potential call out of Roman Reigns, and a lot more from WWE Day One. Make sure you listen to both of those shows. This coming Monday, we will present to you the 2023 Getting Over Awards, aka The Meaties, our year-end award extravaganza coming to you on Monday, and we will be back on Tuesday with our next WWE episode. I appreciate all of you listening to this edition of Getting Over. On the way out, let me hit you with some reminders. First, of course, that this podcast is all about Defy. So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And please remember, I happen to love the number... And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up, you get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant recaps of the major TV shows, and exclusive news posts every single Friday. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over.
over. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the podcast. As mentioned, we will be back on Monday with the meaties, but at this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.